Welcome to Stan Ontology, uh, a K-pop track breakdown podcast. I'm Claudia, uh, she, her pronouns. And hey, I'm Michael or Regression, they, them pronouns. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter at Stan Ontology. So this week we are talking about Red Velvet's One of These Nights. So, um, we should try and explain why the hell we've picked one of these nights as the track we're covering this week, shouldn't we? Yeah, this one's a little... I would say a little complex and a little bit unusual because like so far we've gone on almost like a chronological, well, we have gone on a chronological kind of adventure, right? We've talked about, you know, what we think of as like the er K-pop track. We've talked about G and Merotic, you know, for girl groups, for boy groups. And we talked a little bit about that, that really fun, hot mess era. We've talked about Lucifer. We've talked about Come Back Home. And then last episode we talked about you know, we just came up with a unifying uh, formula for all post, like, mid-2010s K-pop uh, album headlining singles. No big. <laughs> no big deal. As you, as you do. Yeah. Just casually. <laughs> but this one's a little different. Yeah, it's it's still a single. It's still a fairly successful track. It's finally a track that isn't, like, a complete smash hit. Yeah, it's only a moderate hit. Yeah, we've got that. It only made top 10 instead of getting into top three. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. But like, I think for us, there are a couple of important things going on here. Like to start with, we're rounding out what does SM sound like? And I know we've covered a lot of different SM tracks, but the like core idea of SM's really good at doing R&B hasn't really come through out of the tracks that we've done. And this is just a really excellent R&B track. Yeah, I think you can sort of, uh, you you can listen to all the tracks we've talked about and you can pick up an R&B influence, but we've never really focused on it. So th- this is the focus one. This is the focus episode. Yeah. And then it also it's like, well, what have we seen girl groups doing? And what we've seen girl groups doing is be sickly sweet. Um, super s- pure and innocent. Super cute, pure yeah. and innocent crush stuff. Or we've seen them be sledgehammer-wielding sexy badasses. Yeah. Sexy anarchists with spray paint. Yeah, exactly. And who could say, but maybe, maybe there's a a thing that women can do that isn't either being cute and compliant or sexy. And maybe there are other emotional states that girl groups might get to explore. (gasps) Who knew? Um, So this is a starting point for like, what girl groups and a couple of weeks exploring some of the the new things that girl groups get up to right that don't just sit right at the extreme poles of um not that like comeback home was an egregious example not that g was no. the worst no um we'd like them but like where are where are girl groups getting their vibes now yeah uh so i guess this all means we really should start by saying by talking a bit about who red velvet are who is this girl group? They've certainly got an interesting relationship to those like poles of f- 
like yeah. K-pop female group uh, girl group presentation. Right. So the super basic nutshell version, uh, they are, as of time of recording, SM Entertainment's latest girl group. There are rumors there might be a new one. Let's set that aside. That's just the stand getting in the way of the ontology. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so they debuted in 2014 with four members, Irene, Solgi, Wendy, and Joy. Uh, and a year later, they added a fifth member to their group, Yeri. Um, and yes, they've ha- happiness. I think was their initial debut single, which was four members. But like by the time they like properly got into the world, they were a five member group, and they've been that for most of their existence now. Yeah, I I certainly think of them as a five member group. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they are again, as with every other group we've talked about so far, massively successful. One of the most successful girl groups in K-pop. Yeah, they like haven't had the. That haven't got to the stage that in this generation that um, Twice and Blackpink have, but they are like certainly the top tier of all girl groups that aren't named Twice and Blackpink, and uh, like as part of that they are that they've like they've had a, a like a couple of singles that have broken through in massive ways. I'd say like Dum Dum might have done it, but in particular Red Flavor and Bad um, Bad Boy, yeah, like properly got to that like ubiquitous like big cultural phenomenon on its own levels. Mm-hmm. They are actually one of seven pop groups to ever have performed in North Korea. Yeah, uh, the, I, I distinctly remember that weird moment where I think Irene got famous for like her incredibly worried about the men in her vicinity faces while they were mm-hmm. um, visiting North Korea. Yeah, they, they performed in 2018 and it was like part of like a broader kind of diplomatic initiative between South Korea and North Korea it was i've seen i've seen photos of it it looks awkward yeah i absolutely um like when have you ever seen an audience like the, the, it just puts the sort of like consumer market for media in south korea versus like what nominally seems like a complete absence of that or a completely different version of that in north korea just like who's getting to sit in that auditorium what are they doing how are they engaging with this and it's just radically different but all that aside, it does point to kind of the the cultural power that they wield, right? Like to to be yeah, con- totally. even considered for a move like that. Um, so we, as we know, with SM loves their concepts, especially for their newer groups. EXO had superpowers. <laughs> Red Velvet gets to, and I made this joke before we started recording, and I promise I would say it again. <laughs> SM is trying to have their cake and eat it. Uh, you said it it's so good i'm I'm ashamed of myself yeah you should be frankly (laughs) so the red velvet cake group um they have two sides they've got the red side and then they have the imaginatively named you guessed it velvet side yeah they have layers Mm. (laughs) sorry that was the one i wanted to get in wow okay (laughs) Okay, the, the, so so all the red songs are like poppy, experimental, pretty electronic. Uh, all of the kind of photo shoots, color palettes associated with that, they're like bright primary colors, really saturated, kind of retro. Sometimes, yeah, definitely. Um, on the flip side, you've got Velvet, which is more R&B influenced, um, less brash, less um, less. I would have called them sultry. Although that's not yeah. always the mood they're going for. Yeah, no, like sultry, but sometimes emotional, sometimes more um, just like subtle in various ways. But again, like we're still talking about K-pop here. There's, these are just different ways of approaching pop songs. 
Right. Um, my favorite is that very early on in the career, they released two mini albums or, you know, extended plays to, uh, to the rest of us. Uh, one was called The Red. And the album cover, it's like, again, all five of them super saturated wearing these, what, what, what would you call them, overalls? Yeah. Well, let me pull up the artwork quickly. Um, well, not really overalls, but... Yeah, like you, like bright red uniform things with um, bibs or whatever. Like primary colors, super saturated, playful hairstyles. Again, slightly retro look. Yeah, And, and they then, followed that up with The Velvet, which is the EP that this track is taking off and is the lead single for. Right, and they're all dressed in like this like very pastel-colored, desaturated, drawing-room-looking thing, wearing what I can only describe as Snuggies with slightly more class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're wearing dress love Snuggies, it. everyone. Yeah, I love it. Love a classy It looks very snuggie. comfortable. But if you are listening to this and going, hey, didn't you just talk about how girl groups tend to only get to be either cute and innocent, much like the red side, or sexy and sultry, much like the velvet side. Yes, that is the whole point. The whole point, the red velvet special trick is that they get to be both. And by both, I don't, right. They basically ping pong between these two modes. Yeah, uh, um, and it's like you can absolutely see that in the release titles. As we said, first EP is the red. For following their debut single is the red. This record is called the Velvet. They have a couple of like intermediate singles. Then they have the Red Summer, followed by Perfect Velvet. Like there is a progression here about like exploring different aspects of either one or the other side. Mm-hmm. What has happened more recently though is they've come up with the re-release of Perfect Velvet was the Perfect Red Velvet. And oh, we've got red and velvet in the same title, which means that this is an opportunity to like see what happens when you combine them together. And the result was Bad Boy, which is one of their most by like clearly one of their best, but also one of the most successful tracks. Oh, also, like, it's every song that they've done where they've actually combined the concepts is, is I think, both of our favorite songs by Red Velvet. Yeah, absolutely. And the most obvious example of that is both Bad Boy and then also the most recent track, which is Psycho. Mm-hmm. It's off Finale, which is the third installment of a sort of trilogy of Red Velvet festival releases. Um, the, just in terms of news about the group, like Psycho had a kind of slightly marred release given that it was supposed to be debuted at the Christmas... Um, end of Christmas slash end of year show yep. um, in 2019. And unfortunately, in preparation for one of the other events, Wendy, one of the members of the group, f- like fell in an accident in the um, on set and apparently injured herself really seriously. Um, yeah. So they did not pr- promote this nearly as... Um, nearly as... I'm not going to say as well as they could have because... Not as heavily, like, we'll say. 
Yeah, it, it simply can't be as heavily because you just don't have all five mem- five of your members right. and you have to like substitute people in for the live performances. You can't go on live things. It, it, it's it's complex, but also this is the sort of stuff that, like the world the like the world throws stuff up, and right. one uh, of the I'm, things it threw up was a serious injury. Fortunately, she did recover quite well. She kind of was discharged from hospital after two months there, which which tells you a bit about how serious that uh, that yeah. accident was. But of course, but um, this did mean that she recovered in time for COVID to hit. <laughs> so that's a thing. I guess the last note uh, we should mention is that two of their members, Irene and Solgi, are forming the first what's called subunit. So much like we were talking about last episode with uh, XO uh, members having these smaller subunits where they get to, you know, certain kind of like subsets of the group members get to go off and kind of explore different kinds of music, but sort of still be affiliated with the main group. Uh, mm-hmm. this is Red Velvet's first subunit, and they're preparing a, an album, uh, a mini album to be released in July 2020. So yeah, that will come out sooner or later, and it's yeah. pretty exciting for that personally. Mm-hmm. So that is Red Velvet as a group, pretty much. Um, and we get to like see some of the, like, if not first inklings, because of course they have, the, nothing is ever as binary as we describe it. But um, we start to see one of the more like interesting ways in which you slice between the red and the velvet, the like cutesy and the sexy, as poles around which like girl groups get organized and conceived of in K-pop, yeah. in this track. So what is this track? This track, one of these nights, was like we said, a single for the velvet. Its title in Korean is not one of these nights. It's seven uh, seven, as in July the seventh which is a reference to the Chilsok Festival. Uh, and the story of that festival is that it's about two star-crossed celestial lovers who are kind of uh, ordained by kind of the cosmic bureaucracy, I guess, <laughs> um, to only meet once a year on 7-7 on this day. Uh, there are analogs to this. Uh, the version of this myth that I was familiar with growing up was the Chinese version of this, uh, Tixi, which the story is basically the same instead of being, I believe, uh, a cow herd and the daughter of a high-level administrative official. It was uh, a cow herd and a weaver girl represented by two constellations. But the basic story is the same, right? Two young lovers who, for circumstances outside of their control, can never meet except for this one day. It's kind of like, I called it the, like, uh, East Asian mythological Romeo and Juliet with less teen suicide. Uh, yeah, and and more bureaucratic tragedy. Yeah, and, and it's very much like a romantically kind of, there's a lot of romantic connotations, right? It's like the classic romantic tragedy, and it's a, it's a fixture. At least the, at least TC in, in, in Chinese culture and literature has this, like, tragic romance it's like the tragic romance story. Yeah. Um, and it very much carries through in the song. Yeah, totally. And you get lyrics which sort of reflect that. They talk a lot about trying and wishing you could meet again and combining that with a sort of like celestial and, and um, ast- ast- astronomic imagery about like there's a lot of star stuff going on yeah there's star stuff like just emphasizing distance and the relationship between like distance and separation and 
emotional separation. This you can read the lyrics for yourself, but like this is the world we're dealing in. Um, so the thing about this track is this has got all this like quite classical and um, like poetic stuff hanging around in the what it's referencing explicitly. What this track has become instead has been effectively the the K-pop memorial track to the Sewol Ferry disaster. So to explain that, we sort of need to explain what the Sewol Ferry disaster is. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of caveat at the beginning by going, neither of us were near in around South Korea at the time. Also, neither of us speak Korean. So... Yeah, we're building all of our knowledge out of a mix of Western news outlets, translated sources, academic literature, journalistic stuff. English, yeah, English new, uh, English language uh, reporting outlets. Yeah, exactly. So, so we can't. We are by no means an authority on this. Yeah, we can't claim any authority, but like you can build up an Im- image based on references, translations, the things, particularly with an event this big and significant of how it springs up in other aspects of culture and media, because Mm -hmm. it really does spring up in other aspects of culture and media. So yeah, the sort of like intro to what exactly the civil ferry disaster is. Um, So in 2014, a ferry carrying mostly high school teenagers um, from the city of Incheon to Jeju Island, which is uh, a large-ish sort of holiday yeah, it's like a really popular holiday kind of day trippy destination if you're close. Off the south coast of the Korean Peninsula. Um, the ferry capsized basically due to like crew incompetence primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, you, anyone who knows anything about like big ferries knows that there's a lot of big space. And if you've got unsecured cargo and maybe potential for leaks, it's very easy to capsize them if you're irresponsible or time. Especially if the center of, right, if the center of gravity is off because of the way the where you've distributed the weight of cargo and passengers, yeah, etc. If there's a lot of free weight, there's these things are dangerous. Um and obviously hanging in the background is the reason there's so much free weight and so much more space and of like capacity to the ship is because the operator has done a lot of stripping out of a lot of the safety mechanisms. A lot of the unused space and ballast has been stripped out and turned into more cargo space or more ferry space for cars or whatever. It might Which be. is all supposed to be illegal. Yeah. Um, well, a mix of illegal and there's the sort of like corporate capture of regulatory bodies that like push, um, push regulations down or stop them being enforced quite so effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, bottom line is of the 476 passengers in the ship over 300 of them and many of them teenagers lose their lives mm-hmm. um, and the responsibility for the disaster is dispersed between the operators who clearly were cutting co- corners for, for profit um, there's some wild stories about the um, the owner of the operating company who is at various times a religious cult leader as well as a photographer as well as like um, mysterious recluse um you can again feel free to do your own googling but like be warned that this like slips into all sorts of bizarre nooks and crannies if you go in that direction mm-hmm. at the same time oh, the crew are basically abandoned their responsibilities and got themselves off the ship before many of the passengers right um the south korean coast guard response was pretty hamstrung because um i, I think the uh the like initial responsibility was supposed to be shared or devoted from the coast guard to the like um like high-level police or police or navy, I can't remember which. But the the, Kore- the Korean Coast Guard like m- like asserted their authority to 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 preside over the rescue, but also it failed to provide an effective rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then effectively started spinning out into a much larger political scandal because the um the president at the time Park Yun Hye um was seen to basically handle it incredibly ineffectively um was seen to basically be shielding a lot of those corporations that had captured a lot of the South Korean regulatory state and like go- governing bodies and um botched a lot of the inquiries and formed a f- effectively fully antagonistic relationship with a bunch of working class families who were who um who had lost children in the disaster and then also proceeded to try to muzzle the response uh, any criticism put them on watch lists it also turns out later that the park administration had created secret blacklists of uh journalists and artists kind of coming back to our focus on this uh podcast mm-hmm. uh who had criticized the government's involvement in this uh in this tragedy in any way, um, you know, barring them from receiving any government acknowledgement, any sponsorship, any grants, and essentially trying to censor uh, people who were not even necessarily criticizing the government, just commemorating the Seoul victims. Yeah. And in that way, the um, the disaster becomes fully politicized in effect, in, in that it was never not political. This was always a disaster caused by like, corporate capture of state bodies and failed regulation and profit motives. But now it had become fully party political in that you had far right wingers um, basically accusing the families of attempting to extort the government for money, mm-hmm. um, that they weren't mourning inappropriately, effectively, like trying to gain political capital or financial capital out of the, um, out the disaster versus basically a, a center left government party were using it as part of their, their broad criticism of uh, Park's government and mm-hmm. her own actions, which eventually led to her impeachment. Um, so yeah, like uh, in and among the reading uh, that I've done for this, and I know Claudia's done a bit as well, is like a lot of echoes of the, um, well, a lot of the, like surfacing a lot of the tensions inherent in South Korea's political system, given its massive, massive economic explosion under military rule and the very young democracy that it has mm-hmm. um, and the sort of lack of development of like systems of accountability and criticism within that democratic system. And, and, to, have what, and to have what like systems of accountability and sensibly safety be completely run over roughshod by anyone with the money to do so. Exactly, yeah. Um, and the, the like failures of the regulatory and, and like safety systems of the, the government, meaning that like ordinary South Koreans were at the front lines of some of the like horrendous industrial or economic disasters that the country was threatening to go through, but had suppressed through just the sheer nominal and like extraordinary like explosion in wealth and prosperity that had happened over the course of the 20th century. So, like, this is the sort of background that is feeding to the civil ferry disaster. And it becomes, like, central political moment in, like, the, the, the recent political history of South Korea. Right. Like, to, to, to put it in as simple, uh, the most simple terms I can think of, it's, it is a tragedy that proves that the government cannot take care of our children. And, in fact, has no interest in doing so. And when you point out that it can't, will do everything it can to cover up that fact and to punish you for saying it. Uh so yeah um it was a it was you know it, it's still kind of a important kind of landmark kind of moment in the in that kind of national consciousness i i i suppose yeah no totally um it feels weird to be saying this without actually being korean 
Yeah, no, again, like we have to hedge everything we say with, we can't demonstrate this from first-hand experience. We can only rely on third-hand accounts and translation. But like, Mm -hmm. this is not only like how people describe it, who are there and are talking about it, but also the sense that we get from just like living, living and observing Korean culture in the aftermath of it is like, it's got a vast effect and like a, a, a really substantive role in like showing the like fractures within like the South Korean body politic. But to bring this back around to K-pop, we have actually mentioned this briefly when we were talking about Come Back Home because that acoustic live version that we we discussed briefly and linked to, that was done by the members of 2NE1 at a Ferry commemoration event. That's why they're all wearing these yellow ribbons. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like we start to see that, like, of course, any mass entertainment industry is going to be responsive to the political events of the country. But exactly how and exactly in what ways is going to like differ wildly from place to place and from circumstance to circumstance. And in this case, we've got the very bizarre circumstance of like we have a pop track here that is in explicit terms, nothing to do with the disaster. In fact, SM Entertainment has another big pop track which is meant to be its explicit acknowledgement of the disaster. And that happens to be FX's red light. Red light is not a track that has any in any emotional sense attached to the disaster it just has like references and like figures of speech and like in the lyrics pointers yeah just pointers in the lyrics that like gesture in the general direction of like sinking and a very related disaster it's just that none of that sense comes out in the music or the song we've also said before that like the lyrics are possibly part of the least important part of these tracks that we're talking about exactly yeah right it's about the mood and the feeling and, and if you didn't know anything about red light as i didn't when i first listened to it you would you know let's be honest you don't listen to the song and go oh this is definitely a song about commemorating tragedy yeah it, it would be impossible to come to that conclusion and yet this is a track where that wasn't at all intended but it has absolutely become that um it is literally the single um hip-hop track that i've ever found where every comment section, every online discussion about it revolves around its relationship to the Sebel Ferry disaster and that continually resurfaces on anniversaries in discussion about it, despite it coming out a year and a half, two years later with no explicit relation at all. Yeah, that, so the, you the, know, I've, I've seen people reaching for kind of symbolism within the music video to prove or to show that it was an intentional commemoration of the uh, Sewell Ferry incident and it's I have to say folks it's not there (laughs) yeah and like we're very much in the realms of like yes there's a lot of water imagery this there's a lot of like poetic keyholes and corridors keyholes and spaces but like this is very like magical like magical surrealist imagery that like could come up pretty much anywhere in any context that was trying to evoke dreamlike states. I'm pretty mm-hmm. certain for my own for my own self. And yeah. in, in that case, you have to look for something that's. I mean, I, I like we're dealing with a music video here. It's never going to get more explicit. What it is going to get is more suggestive and emotive in tone and feeling and um, like gesture in that direction. 
my kind of flippant explanation of it was if you overload any given music video with enough empty symbolism, your fans will fill all of that in for you. And I'm not saying yeah. it's a bad thing or an improper thing to do. It It's certainly fun, and I've certainly engaged in it. And that kind of meaning-making, I think, is, you know, a, a, a really almost, like, instinctive on the part mm. of us as, I don't know... Uh, well, it's certainly on the part of fans, because this is part of how you engage in fandom. You try to make meaning out of what's been produced and make new meaning out of what's been produced. Um, and I actually think that's what makes this track, aside from everything else we're going to talk about, it, remarkable. It's how people have taken it up and turned it into something uh, outside of what the label intended. Because up until this point, everything we've been talking about, all of these songs, we've been approaching it from the point of view of the of the record company, right? We've been saying, oh, this is what... SM wants Monster to feel like and look like. This is what, uh, you know, Come Back Home, this is what the producers of that video intended it to be like. We haven't really talked about how people, how fans and their audiences have taken these songs and turned them into something else. Yeah, like I very explicitly remember saying that part of my intention was to highlight the work that goes into producing k-pop as a phenomena but like part of the actual work is on the part of the the audience and like right. not i don't merely mean that as in like the art itself is co-constructed i mean that like some of the work to make it meaningful and make it understood in a like a public sense is done on by fans themselves and yeah. that like generating fan culture is part of the process of like making k-pop the institution and the cultural phenomenon it is um, we, we're also, I, I should just add very briefly, we're doing this at a time where like K-pop fan groups are being deployed in sort of like, um, Black Lives Matter related and, um, and like anti right wing, um, campaigning all, all across US, the US. Right. In a US political context, which is, uh, we'll get into this again when we start talking about how K-pop tries to break into the US, but it's certainly... It's certainly a moment to kind of like see all of your political follows on Twitter, be like, so what's this K-pop thing and what's a fan cam? And why am I being told to stand Jungkook? I don't get it. Yeah. And, and then like yeah. being the person to be like, I'll explain this, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And as with everything, it's, it's complicated and multifaceted. Although I will say the, 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 the kind of quick takeaway from it is, hey, K-pop has well k-pop fans have never really shied away from political engagement it's not no certainly not yeah i, I don't think they've ever sh like we could in terms of complicating it we could get away with what politics do k-pop fans actually embody and express and that's a much yeah. more complicated question at the same time is it very se seriously like seems to be that they do express very consistently very strong anti-racist principles <laughs> and that's a very good starting point for pretty much any political movement yeah um in, so, in that case, yeah, what the hell is this track doing to generate this bizarre, like, like emergence of constructed, of constructed association? Well, let's, well, I thought we could start by, like, what does this track feel like? How does it sound? What, do, what, what emotions does it evoke? Yeah, um, and, like, we start off with the story itself, which is the sort of, like, yearning for, for a turn from a, for a lover that you will only ever meet in both in the sense of you will only meet them on that one of those um 
one of those nights on those preordained uh, festivals. But mm-hmm. also, like, with the celestial imagery, there is a sense of, like, like metaphysical separation here, that, like, a longing for a lover who is, like, dead or somewhere else entirely. And that, like... Unreachable, not a, right? That's the thing. Yeah. And it, so it's a, not at all, a, uh, a, like, a leap for me to see that the sort of, like, for long and longing quality of, like, a lost lover could be translated into a sort of long quality for a, a relative or loved one who has passed. Mm-hmm. But it's not just forlorn, right? It doesn't just hammer the like, we're sad button. It's really lush. It's really yeah. dreamy. It sounds like a song where the entire music video should have been filmed through a Vaseline coated lens. Yeah, Which exactly. if you don't know what that does, it just makes everything look like super foggy and blurry. Yeah, no, like dream sequence aesthetics are exactly in that, in that like super fuzzy. Um, yeah, do, do it to your phone. Do it to your phone camera, and then clean it afterward. I'm not responsible if your phone camera breaks. Uh, just <laughs> see what it see what it looks like. Yeah, you'll you'll get what I mean. Um, but yeah, so so like you have this much more like airy, spacious, and like more delicate and like beautiful version of what is ostensibly this sort of like this yearning quality to the music um right. so like it's it, we're again like finally we we're, we're able to not just say it is this like well the the flip side is like what would this song be if this was a much more standard track and the, the answer would be in k-pop we have for pretty much every like pop album there is at least one or two tracks that are what we call ballads usually to to end the album too yeah um yeah and they are like the tracks with much slower tempos, much more relaxed moods, much more classical instrumentation frequently. You get a ton of strings in them. Um, Very, pianos. Al- almost always, I want to say, they are vocal showcases. Yeah, and their purpose is to uh, like either be like very standard old school romance or love songs, to mm-hmm. be the, to all the standard imagery, to be like songs about lost love, potentially, if they're sadder and darker, mm-hmm. or to be like thank yous and sincere, sincere reflections of emotion. And like, we know what those sound like, and they're kind of grating sometimes. And like, you, there are always ballads that are like incredibly well put together and incredibly emotionally affecting. Um, and beautifully done. Right. Yeah. Not and that. like, I'm just thinking like there are Whitney Houston tracks that are like, in some senses, you could feel that as cloying, but really like with that much ex- expressive a voice and that like well put together and written a pop song, it's really expressive. We'll, At the we'll same time, like, in. sorry, we'll put some clips in. Yeah. No, like I'm just thinking like, I will always love you is probably the, the yeah. like standard for like a big bombastic pop ballad. That is all I'm taking with me. So goodbye. Please don't cry. We both know I'm not what you you need. And I Um, at the same time, there's always the risk of that sort of like John Williams, Steven Spielbergy like emotional fatigue associated with this like really cloying, very effectively draining. Yeah, there's a reason why we were we were pulling up movie score composers, and that's because you're not listening to. Okay, you you might after the movie comes up, but in the context of the film, <laughs> you aren't listening to this on a loop for like 
three weeks and then it's coming at you from like a shopping mall and it's coming from you at the like bubble tea place and it's on the radio and it's in yeah. the cat like it's in the taxi it, and like yeah yeah it's weird like i'm trying to think like where has that ever happened and the answer is like adele maybe mm-hmm. and you sort of get these weird spaces where it's an intermediate between like pop tracks and ballads and this is like at least at first glance for the first half of this track this is just one of those r&b ballads um, yeah, I want to I want to kind of point out that the uh so SM as as do a lot of other labels will put out sort of descriptions for the press like for upcoming singles and upcoming releases and this song was originally described by them as a quote R&B ballad with a polished rhythm. And yeah, like R&B ballad I get because that's where it starts out. It's certainly not what I think is the most notable and interesting feature of the track. Mm-hmm. And polished rhythm for me, just like uh, the second verse, we'll get to it. It's just got it's got electronic drums in it. That's is that what you're pointing to? Is that what that what you mean by polished? Again, like we're not saying that SM doesn't know what it's doing when it's putting these tracks together, but just like the the like the balladness of this track would be something that would normally weigh us down and make us less interested in it. And right. yet, this is one of those that really elevates itself to a, like a, it's doing something on an entirely different level. So like it, this is this is the interesting thing. Like we'd normally get turned off by ballads. We'd normally get oh, turned I skip off ballads. by um, yeah, routinely. <laughs> There's a very short list of K-pop ballads I'll listen to. This is one of them. Yeah. So what is it actually doing? And this is where we get to listen to the gorgeous track itself. Um, and the sort of where we resuscitate R and B is like the actual interesting thing here. Mm-hmm. So like R and B, we've talked about a lot as like one of those like traditions that k-pop is drawing from all the time i was gonna say we've mentioned that uh sm entertainment trains all of their vocalists to have an r&b voice yeah exactly and somehow we've managed to pick a bunch of tracks that like emphasize the pop deployment of that rather than actual r&b stuff itself we finally hit a track here that is like first and foremost an r&b track um Mm -hmm. And yeah, so like the old tradition with R&B is really interesting in that like R&B was effectively like the popper replacement for jazz back in the like 40s that like mm-hmm. when jazz stopped becoming mass popular popular music it, and like split off into being more art music, the replacement for it was like taking jazz instrumentation and harmony, but putting pop forms and vocals on it. And that was R&B. Mm-hmm. Um, which stands for rhythm and blues, in case yeah, you we're, do not. Yeah, we're very explicitly, like, we're taking old blues standards and putting rhythms on it, which could be used for big band or could be used as, like, the starting point for um, the starting point for your jazz improv or whatever it might be. Um, at this point, like, jazz and big band jazz stops becoming, like, the ubiquitous pop culture, pop cultural, like, pop music, and you start getting new forms like bebop and um, eventually, like, much more obviously art jazz stuff taking its places like where jazz goes in its direction but like there is a very strong lineage here between like jazz harmony and r&b harmony trading off each other in terms of like the sorts of techniques the sorts of functional tricks it's pulling to like evoke its emotionality and its interest and then also just the like what an r&b vocal sounds like now is super colored by what we got in the 1990s where like particularly black R&B, like, exploded in the US as a, mm-hmm. as a cultural form. And you get so many acts from just, like, Alia and Destiny's Child and Beyonce being the, like, couple that I personally go to as, like, big favourites and, like, statements of what the what R&B as a genre is capable of and the sort of, like, emotional space it's working in. 
And just as a little sidebar, wait, all of these genres we've mentioned as having massive, massive influences on K-pop culture are American imports of African-American music. Yes. Yeah, um, and, and just like given we we said we would last episode, it's important to point out that like American pop music is doing this exactly the same thing. That like the follow up to Ali is just as much the Backstreet Boys as it is Destiny's Child. Um, the uh, the process of co opting and transforming and making new forms out of like black heritage, especially um, when you're jazz now, and R&B is, especially yeah. when you're also talking about the like forms of quote-unquote American jazz and R&B that gets exported globally. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's complicated, but... Yeah, just keep in the back of your mind, I guess, that a lot of... K-pop has a lot of, like, very obvious nods to American pop music. And by American pop music, I really mean Black American pop music. Yeah, because I mean, this is this is exactly the thing, isn't like pretty much every major American pop innovation has come first out of um, first out of um, black uh, like black forms of art, and then secondly, the the bits that K-pop really likes are R and B and hip hop, which are explicitly the ones that are still like rooted in that black tradition, and mm-hmm. it hasn't taken up say alt rock or punk in the same way. Um, mm-hmm. obviously with exceptions but like the priorities that K-pop has had have like dovetailed so much better with that part of Americans, American pop tradition than it does with the, the more obviously white stuff yeah um, going so all yeah, the way it, like, yeah no god um, it's now just like I hope you've listened to this track I think this track is gorgeous I will straight up say this is one of the most complex and harmonically interesting pop tracks I know and like Again, we talked last week about the difficulty of like circumscribing what pop means, and that like if you were to like try and talk about a pop tradition that tries to include Frank Sinatra as well as Red Velvet, then like you've exploded it to the point of meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, like of course Stevie Wonder is doing stuff that might be this complex, but like this is again still meant to be a main series K-pop single that is like expanding its harmonic range in like ways that I don't think I've ever seen a like a a track with this which which is meant to be and is engineered to be super popular has ever done i'm i'm pretty confident with that this is like right at the pinnacle of like complex r&b like harmonically interesting songwriting yeah it's harmonically interesting enough that we're not doing a full analysis for time yeah. reasons yeah like i simply couldn't like it want... would be so much work to try and actually provide a full thorough rundown none of, of what us, the track is doing none of us wants regs to explode please <laughs> I almost did it once. We're not doing that this time. Yeah. But what I can do is just sort of like point out a couple of like my favorite moments in this track. Um, And so like you start off with a verse which has just straight up orchestral instrumentation. Um, I I don't know whether this was recorded strings, but I'm inclined to say so because they just sound fucking great. Mm-hmm. It transitions to piano for the first verse. The first verse isn't like super adventurous, but what you get is a lot of color to the chords. They're not just standard. There are all sorts of extensions and crunch to them. Mm-hmm. 
And the the sort of like thing you get is like more and more crunch until you get the um this little descending figure at 56 seconds or so. We hit a chorus that modulates to an entirely unrelated key with zero preparation. And like, if, in, if we had scream moments for what the hell are they doing in Come Back Home, I have scream moments of my own for like, how, what the fuck are they doing here? Or like, how did they, I have moments of just like, utter, uh, being utterly stupefied as to how dare they um, do something that outrageous, this unprepared modulation. Mm-hmm. And I still find it just like an incredible moment of like moving from this like quite delicate and quite um, like sparkly and bright mood to just like, okay, we're sinking to something much more broad and wide and like uh, enveloping in this chorus. And it comes with the lyrics as well, where it stops becoming sort of worried and and um, concerned with the um, the sort of like loss and the like the the like failure to capture the thing that's out there to the like warm, great imagining of what it could be like if we were to return, right. Uh, return to each other. Um, so just like, obviously everything needs to unify together. Like the, the, the tone matches the, um, the explicit content and that matches the, the sort of like songwriting techniques, but just like the shift into the, the chorus's new key is just gorgeous. And then what the chorus is doing is just like the 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 vocal line hammers one note and the um the harmony very like carefully arranges itself around that and just reharmonizing around static vocal lines is just like a very cool way of doing it because it means that we have all sorts of different harmonic colors that very pretty much don't repeat themselves at all throughout this chorus. So like no repetition is just like a, such an astounding way of writing a full chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, the very end of the chorus, about one thirty. Um, yeah, one thirty through one thirty-five, which lands on one of the most like astounding and gorgeous explosions with this weird chord substitution. Um, I've tried to do the analysis for it. It's wonderful. Um, I think this is the this is the this is the bit of the chord analysis you showed me, and it was just a lot of question marks and screaming. Yeah, it, w- it was straight up question marks and screaming because, like, I know what the chord is. It's one of those like beautiful stunt jazz chords with like uh, major uh, ma- major seventh and the um, the ninth in the in the bass, and like that voicing is just so open and gorgeous and bright and expansive, and it comes with the like. all the vocal harmony leaning into it. And it's just a wonderful moment. Um, It comes back at the end of the second chorus as well. It's just as spectacular and actually slightly modified because it needs to lead into the bridge in that case. So the thing that I was talking about earlier is like, this is an R&B track, yeah, but really, like, the, the like, darkness comes in the second verse. Because it's actually just a trap track. Yep. Surprise. 
140, 140, the post-chorus bit, just falls into a trap beat. The percussion dips away for a moment at the start of the second verse, and then like two minutes, five seconds, it picks back up again. This is a trap track. This is like a low-key trap ballad. And um, that's not to say that like, um, that, that the trap in particular is an astounding thing to have in ballads and like, you can point to all sorts of artists who are doing similar things. I think Kalela would probably be my like go-to for like people working in the space of like new school R&B beats, mm-hmm. um, where they're like taking it instead of from like old hip hop as their point of reference, they're taking new hip hop as their point of reference to like add harmony and lushness and melody to in such a way that it builds into this much more complex thing. Um, but yeah like it's still like actually really dark and really soulful in these moments and like part of that is because trap drums have that association for me at least like they're built for tracks that are dark and brooding yeah um and again we get the um we get the um the amazing unprepared modulation again like 225 again i just want to highlight how little repetition there are in these tracks um it's finding ways to restate itself or reconfigure the harmony to like never forcibly have the same tone and the same melody line sorry the same tones and the same chord progressions in specific moments um which i just think is like great songwriting um you're never really unsure where it is. And it also means that you're never tethered. It adds to the dreamlike quality of like constantly mm-hmm. exploring new developed spaces. Second chorus is pretty much as, as before. Um, and then the substitution at three minutes. It's the same glorious substitution, except it's got to be uh, the, the strings push it a fifth up so that we can use that as a dominant pivot to a, um, a bridge. The bridge is like, I'm allowing it to indulge itself in very like saccharine stuff here. Um, This is where it's at its most trad ballad and I'm fine with that because it's very short and it's just a setup. So that yeah. by the time we hit the chorus for the third time, we don't actually need to modulate, which I think is the one of the most like that I think is my favorite cute trick about this track is that every time we've hit the chorus so far, we've had to go through an unprepared modulation to get there. The final one, because we come from a bridge instead of a, a verse, has just stayed in the choruses um, in key mm-hmm. so that it doesn't need to modulate this time. So it just sounds super grand and big instead of like like falling into it. And that like oh, difference. It's like in- the mythical bridge of magpies that the lovers get to meet across once a year. Oh, uh, oh. <laughs> nice. But yeah, it's it's just like there are different ways of reaching this chorus, and like reaching it through its own key is just a means it has this sort of sense of grandeur and expansiveness that it just doesn't in the other choruses. Baby, one of these days, one of 
And again, it's all about like never repeating itself, constantly finding new ways to explore the material it's got. And that material itself just being really complex. Well, also because like, yes, it's it's getting to that point a different way every single time. But if you are not sitting down and giving it your full attention and picking that out, it, it doesn't sound like it's doing that. All of it sounds like it's... It's so well done, you don't notice that it's taking you by a slightly different path each time. And it's enjoyable each time. It doesn't stick out. It doesn't stand out. It sounds like it all fits. Yeah. And the ability to, like, construct this, like, jigsaw puzzle that, like, marshals all the very complex, like, this is super orchestrated. This is like, got a load of different parts going on to, like feed bits of different timbres and tones at different points in the track and the sort of like arrangement project of like actually making each section flow and work together and the whole track the whole four minutes of it it's like four minutes 20 seconds is long for a single um it's got this progression that is just like so so enjoyable to to push through um i really really love it Mm -hmm. um so yeah this is sort of like that's what the track's doing i don't want to get any more formal than that it's deft (laughs) it's deftly written it's it's so capable um and then yeah like that sort of like falls all the way back into the sort of things that we were talking about in that like yeah in some versions if you were just looking at the the chord sequences with all these like beautiful dominant figures and these like um beautiful suspensions you you could imagine a version of this track which um stuck with the like incredibly like full-on longing version of itself the incredibly morose version of itself maybe but no this is like pushing so much further out into like dreamscapes um and that that i think is where it gets all its emotional depth from mm-hmm. is this like ability to like balance like this like harmonic explosiveness with like darkness in the instrumentation and darkness from those trap drums and also like it's just more complex than you'd expect for most ballads um and that like i can't imagine a track we started off with red light is the point in comparison for a track that's explicitly trying to make mention of the 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 fairy disaster right it just doesn't feel like it at all and i think like the combination of um instrumentation arrangement and songwriting here is just like pushes you into that space of like reminiscence but also like loving like memorialization in I feel like such the, a yeah the, beautiful the easy it, it's it's a very it's really complex like emotionally it has it you know we were saying or at least I was saying last time that I like K-pop because it often can surprise you this is not necessarily that but this does balance a lot of I wouldn't even say conflicting or contradictory, but uh, positive and negative emotions at the same time, right? It, it, it's That's why I kind of burst out and called it a deft song uh, a couple seconds ago, because it weaves this line between kind of, right, forlorn, like between longing into kind of sweet reminiscence um, and... Going back to the whole like the, uh, the 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 very constrained emotional space that girl groups are allowed to occupy, right? You're either sexy and mature, or you're cutesy and innocent, and only one of those versions will be your headlining singles, right? You don't get to do both. You certainly don't get to mix them. Oh God, no. Um, 
<laughs> but this is a standout, right? Because it's yeah. it's ostensibly their quote unquote mature, which. Mm, yeah, there are some unfortunate associations given the musical genres that that's associated with. Um, but it's not just that. It's, it's, uh, if I told you that, oh, this is a group that does both cutesy pop stuff and then, like, sexy, uh, kind of, uh, sultry ballads, it's like, okay, this could be either. The fact that it's on a velvet it's all, it's on the mini called the velvet is almost besides the point. Yeah, exactly. That like it, it like it actually has uses for innocence in that sense that like the the like cuteness and the like like beautiful quality that it has in places is like a necessary part of this like loving remembrance and adoration and that it has to get more complex in other places for that to be impactful. And right. that like the um the ability to actually trade between the two that like it has to go from this like very like crystalline beautiful version of itself to a much more like lush indulgent version and that like the move from that is like got all sorts of romantic connotations to it and i mean romantic in the like artistic sense just as much as the like love related sense mm-hmm. um it's there's a sense of romanticism about the like progression through these like different facets of the experience and that it's like a very deep, complex progression through that experience compared to the like, the the other ways you could have this like tone evoked and right. The other I'm, ways you could express this specific emotional combination. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a good song. It's, it's just really good, and it's unsurprising then that like that combination of like a sort of like balanced amount of cuteness as an injection into more serious subject matter or darker subject matter is like exactly the same trick that I feel is getting pulled in Psycho, for example. Um, That it has to like have the sort of archness of the classical instrumentation and the very operatic dramatic vocal runs to be able to sink and sell you on the like power and the like noxious infectious quality about the like um, the more like poppy like impressive vocal patterns in the chorus for example Mm -hmm. you need the balance between the two to actually sell the thing as a whole and like this is one of the like the phenomena that red velvet and think in particular are like so exciting so interesting to look at for because they like have so few songs that just like find their lane and sit in them like obviously they do like like i'm gonna say rookie and uh russian roulette are sort of tracks that like know what they are and they're just doing the thing they're doing and that's not bad because they're also good versions of the things they're doing. Mm-hmm. But like in those in those moments where they have the ability to like trade off or complicate what they're doing dynamically, they get to some extraordinary places. And that like this automatic, I'd say dumb dumb in a way almost, um, mm-hmm. the ability to trade off between the, uh, like I, I'm not gonna. It's doing a very different version of it. But like I think it's still trading off the sort of like power versus cute and like that as a as a balance is a a really interesting one to strike. And then Bad Boy in Psycho, which I keep coming back to, is gorgeous tracks. 
Because um, they're really good. I'm almost yeah. tempted to link them just because you should... We're not going to be able to talk about them for a while just because of the way we set up the schedule, but they're good songs and you should listen to them. I was going to clip them and put them in anyway, so yeah. as I was mentioning them. Um, I, I'm almost sad that I that means, uh, like, it's particularly, like, Red Flavor and Russian Roulette, which I think are, like, standout tracks on their own. Like, Red Flavor is, like, one of my favorite K-pop tracks of the last decade. Mm. And yet it's one of the simple ones. It's one of the ones where they are just primary colors and fruit, and that's it. Um, it's just boisterous and fun in a way that, like, I very rarely get anywhere else. It's just, like, I really enjoy the fact that they can do it really well, but also when they complicate it, they get to other more complex and more nuanced places that are similarly extraordinary. So, hey, mm-hmm. Red Velvet, they're doing pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Excited to see what they're coming up with. I want to end this off on a quick note. I swear it's quick. On the choreography, because you will notice that there is no dance practice version uh, and there is no separate performance music video. And in fact, I've rolled up the stage comeback and the uh, kind of choreography all in one. Because it is, you know, a, we'll, we'll call it a ballad track, but at least for the purposes of marketing, it was a ballad track. And yeah. they don't generally have that kind of hyper-athletic, or not even like hyper-athletic, but they don't have, choreography is not, the selling point now there is still a choreography for this it's still pretty i mean if you think of like oh it's a ballad you don't want to be moving around too much because that's at odds with singing uh, and these are vocal showcase tracks right you're, you're trying to show off how well you can sing and that is directly at odds of if you're trying to do a high intensity movement routine during so there is some choreo it's a relatively limited by K-pop standards, there's it's still beautiful and expressive, but the focus is very much more on individual performance rather than synchronization or uh, kind of cleanness. I'll say, if if that makes sense, precision is not necessarily the uh, the thing yeah. you're emphasizing here. It's the like the it's the mood and tone that it adds to the performance right. itself. Right, and yeah, the um. Like Red Velvet's vocalists are just great. Um, yeah. Like all of the like, there are weaker. Obviously, there are weaker and stronger vocalists in the group, and even the weaker ones like are super expressive. And then like you get Joyo, Sugi, or Wendy like blowing the top of the track, and it's just stunning because they have incredible voices. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So we sort of want to wrap it there. Yeah, I mean, as much as we can. Yeah, and no, like, uh... I I think. That like it's a it's important at some level to like recognize that R and B is a tradition and R and B is like it gets expressed in K pop vocalists is not like a, a like a unified singular thing that like people have all sorts of different approaches to like extraordinary ways of performing vocally and every vocalist has their own flavor and that like we can't just say that like ah it's great R and B vocalists and be done with it because like the point about having your own group and the point about there being this proliferation of groups is that like you will find something unique about every single one that like the um the uh the individual members their style their approach their voice timbre whatever it might be that like really hooks you into them but like there is something at the core about like 
this like love of really extraordinary, expressive, powerful voices, and R and B is the means of expressing and like doing that kind of performance that like sits right at the heart of the way that K-pop songwriting has worked and like why that monster in the first place felt the need to inject the sort of harmonic complexity it did and why this is a vocal standout track rather than the the, like a a sort of like diva pop screamer or something like that and that there are places and times for those but like a big part of the K-pop story is these like lush gorgeous R&B tracks and we're better off for it we'll leave you with that wonderful um as always, find us on Twitter at Stan Ontology, and we'll catch you next week or next time. <laughs> oh, don't promise a time. That's podcasting 101. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll be back next time with Blackpink, with Whistle. We were wonderful. Yeah. Until then, 